Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you're joining us. It is episode 127. Uh, we are recording this on Sunday, May 23rd, 2021, at about 2.45 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. And I want to start with this. I think it kind of relates to what we're talking about today, to the movie that we're going to be deep diving. Uh, I'm, we're, we're all into, into our 30s now. And uh, what is something that has happened recently that has made you feel old how recently i mean like in the last like in your 30s that's it let's put it that way the fact that when we do these stupid recastings all i can think of is actors from the 90s this this one included i mean that, that that's that is a good point well, what, a good one point. for me is like when i saw jameer nelson jr playing college basketball that was when i was like yeah I'm old. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, isn't Asante Samuel's son in the NFL? Yeah, and Joe or... Horn's son. That they all got drafted this year. Randy Moss's son. Yeah. It's frightening. Yeah. I'm a- I'm asking you this because uh, I'm a little hobbled this week. I've been on crutches the last half of the week because I tried blowing out my calf playing slow pitch softball. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That sounds like yeah. an old man injury. I, I was running after a fly ball and I was in uh, like mid stride, like I was pushing off and like my calf just felt like it pulled apart and then immediately tightened up on me. And the important part is I didn't catch the ball, but I did get to it and throw it in and held the guy to a single. Terry, were you there that time in college when we did the full on tackle football? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, that was that was brutal. Do you remember how many injuries there was? Oh yeah, you try, yeah, try tackling Big Dan. That, that's not a, it's not a. And we were like in our experience in our late teens, early twenties, and that well, some some of us maybe were a little older, maybe a little more out of shape. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I yeah that, and and now and now we're we're pulling muscles playing slow pitch, beer league softball. It's. Yep. Times are a changing. I, I I feel like I feel like the guys from High Fidelity would appreciate this conversation, which is why I thought we should have it. And then also top five injuries playing uh, <laughs> top, know, five, top five sports. ways you feel old. Yeah, I also I, have I, a I former one student that's now a colleague dishes. that makes me feel old too. You got injured washing dishes? Yeah, I like uh, I, I like snapped a piece of. <laughs> Uh, plastic silverware and it like shot right at my wrist and it like sliced up and i was like yeah i need to like stop this from bleeding right now <laughs> but yeah it, did, did you get the tattoo to cover up the scar it actually is right around the same spot but i mean <laughs> <laughs> no it actually hit my tattoo was after that <laughs> okay okay uh well uh i to, to this whole conversation i'm gonna crack open my beer and ask you guys what are you we drinking uh this fine Sunday evening. Zach, what do you got? I have my uh, trusty Starbucks cup. Uh, this is the last appearance of the Starbucks cup for a while. I, I will be returning to uh, some potent potables when the school year ends, <laughs> which is this week. Oh, ho, ho. 
celebration time, huh? Oh, yes. I'm going to mods it up, except without the school setting. <laughs> as long as you record the dance, I will be okay. Can we just make that a thing now? Mods it up? And we all know what we're talking about? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. I still got three weeks. I still got three weeks. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Terry. I just I had to eat a laugh there. That's I know, I know. Todd, what do you got? Uh, gin martini with a, a habanero olive and a cocktail onion. You've got a gin martini in a lowball glass, though. Not even going martini glass here. Not not gonna go no, full on Hawkeye Pierce. It doesn't fit enough alcohol for a two hour podcast. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, I, uh, I I didn't get a chance to get anywhere. I'm not moving around very well right now. So uh, what was in the fridge was the classic pub beer. Nice. So can't go wrong with pub beer. So that's what I got. All right. Well, as always, make sure that you are subscribed, rating, reviewing all over the Internet. Um, find us at almostsideways.com. Follow our Facebook page. Find us on Twitter at Almost Sideways. I'm at Almost Side Terry. Uh, Zach is at Prozac36. We have Adam at, at Adam Sideways on Twitter. You can follow all of us there. You can find the podcast at uh, Apple Podcasts, at Stitcher, uh, Spotify, Pandora, all those places. Subscribe, rate, review, then unsubscribe, then resubscribe, and just keep doing that over and over again. And I think it actually helps us out even more. That can't be all a right. real thing. I've heard it is. I've heard it's an actual thing. Wow. That's a like All that matters is like subscriptions and not necessarily, you know, getting rid of it. So the more, the more clicks, the better. Okay. What have we been watching this week? Let's go to, oh, I don't know. Let's go to the cager first. Todd, you're up. All right. Mine is from 2011, directed by Dominic Cena, and that is Season of the Witch. Uh, where oh. Nicolas Cage plays a knight named Baveman uh, during the Black Plague in Europe, and he and his buddy, played by Ron Perlman, have to take this woman, who's supposedly a witch, uh, that's played by Claire Foy, uh, to a place where these monks are going to kind of, like, exercise her powers, because she's uh, deemed a threat. Uh, and the movie is just gloriously over the top. I, it's, it sounds kind of like a 90, or a 19, like, 60s, uh, psychological horror movie, and Cage actually signed on to the movie because he thought it was like a Roger Corman homage or, of some kind. But this is Dominic Cena's last movie to date, and it kind of is no surprise. Like, he has some interesting movies in his filmography. He did, like, Swordfish, he did California, and he did, of course, Gone in 60 Seconds. This isn't necessarily one of his more interesting ones, and it was kind of a flop. Um, all the period pieces at the time kind of looked the same. Like, if I didn't know better, I thought this would have been part of, like, the Prince of Persia saga of some kind because it looks exactly the same and cage doesn't even remotely try to sound german uh christopher lee plays this like deformed character uh kind of looking like the elephant man or something and the makeup work there is actually pretty good like and kind of disgusting looking and this was claire foy's first movie and she's pretty awesome like i would have bought her stock if i knew that uh if i had seen the movie back 10 years ago um I think it's funny that Pearlman and Cage are starring together because I, I feel like Ghost Rider and Hellboy would have been a more suitable title for this for this movie, but uh, Season of the Witch just seems so bland and like out of place. Like I don't know. I, I bet, and I bet if it was rated R, Cage would have actually had some freakouts. But he it was supposed to be this like big studio movie, and uh, he kind of plays it cartoonishly instead of like going all fully Cage. The final battle scene is pretty cool. 
Uh, but it's kind of nonsensical. It's a weird movie. I'm giving it two stars. Putting it number 80 on the cager between Trapped in Paradise and National Treasure Book of Secrets. You, either of you seen that Very one? Nice. No. But oh. I had something I wanted to bring up, which is, have you seen the Twitter account Nick Cagebot? Are you familiar with that? I don't have Twitter, so no. Okay, so, yeah, that's been well established on this uh, podcast. Well, apparently... <laughs> um, it was like some sort of algorithm that combines like elements of every single Nick Cage movie and summarizes them in one in like one or two like hypothetical sentences. So the one today is Nick Cage plays a, ma- a magician who surgically <coughs> changes his face to adopt the image of a rival and make uh, makes a human ant size. In the end, he lands a plane and crashes it into a casino. Emma Stone co-stars and. Uh, it, they're they're really funny. I mean, it like you can recognize some of the plots, but like it's also one of those things where like it's so ridiculous that it probably wasn't a real Nick Cage movie, but it could pass as one. And it's all like artificial intelligence. I mean, it, that's awesome. that does sound like like crashing his plane. I mean, that could be a number of things. Did he ever act with Emma Stone? I'm not sure, but but everyone ends ends with a co-star. Like, um, yeah, Cage pay, plays an old con fresh out of prison who mistrusts humans who attack his colony and struggles to write the screenplay. In the end, he wins back the girl at prom by winning a food fight in Dean Norris co-stars. I, I like that one a lot, too. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I, I'm going to have to look that one up. I think my favorite my favorite Twitter account right now is uh, the Twitter account. It's got like 250,000 followers, and its sole purpose is on Friday afternoons to post the video of uh, Daniel, Daniel Craig, Craig. I've seen that one. Uh, introducing the weekend on SNL, and so it's just a video every Friday of, ladies and gentlemen, the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> every believe, Friday. I believe it's a GIF of him, which makes it even better. Yeah, because um, it just keeps going over and over, and it gets like uh, a ton of retweets. So it does. You're, you're not the only one, but it's it's a uh, it's very twenty twenty one. It is. It is. All right, uh, so that is the. Cager. I'm sorry, we had, didn't we didn't have anything interesting to say about uh, season of the witch, Todd. It just. <laughs> I don't know if I did either. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll go next with my uh, my Oscar watch. I've actually got two movies I want to talk about. I want to talk about the Oscar watch, and then the best watch I had this week. Uh, but first, the Oscar watch. We're going back 30 years. To 1991, uh, and let's see if you guys can get it. It was nominated for two acting, or no, one supporting actress and uh, an adapted screenplay. What what year? 1991, supporting actress and adapted screenplay. Two nominations, no wins. Fried green tomatoes. Fried green nice. tomatoes. Yes, nice I'd never cool. seen fried green tomatoes until until this week. Yeah, so I watched Fried Green Tomatoes, and um, this is a 90s movie, if there ever was one. Uh, it's just, it has got all the 90s all the 90s stuff in it. It stars, uh, this is the f- interesting part, though, as I was watching it, I realized. It is starring the, uh, the previous two winners of Best Actress. Jessica Tandy and Kathy Bates are the two stars of this movie. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened before, but it happened here, and I thought that was fascinating. Uh, Kathy Bates plays a, an unhappy housewife who um, 
stumbles upon uh, Jessica Tandy, uh, who is Ninny Threadgood, who uh, is in a nursing home, and she becomes fascinated with the tales that Ninny would tell. And all of them of her uh, her time growing up and uh, living in this small backwoods town where uh, they would sell fried green tomatoes in the local shop. Um, it is, uh, it's a fascinating movie, um, a, a really interesting story, but again, it's very, very 90s. Um, it, it could have been a lot more powerful, I felt. It would, had like little bits and pieces of a lot of different movies that did things a lot better than it did, but um, it's very well acted. Uh, the story, it kind of dances around some stuff that uh, it could have been a lot more uh, forthcoming about. Um, I've heard the, the, uh, the book is very good, too. My wife, of course, is the, the book nerd, and so she said that the book is amazing. Um, and the book actually comes with, in the back, a, uh, a uh, recipe for fried green tomatoes, which I find interesting. Uh, but I'm giving it three stars. Uh, solid movie. Wish it could have been a little bit better. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, I, I love a good 90s movie, and this is just a little too much seeping with the sentimentality of 90s-ness. So, uh, but three stars. You guys seen this one? Yeah, we're pretty much in agreement. I, it, it, it is what it is, and, uh, I mean, that's good enough in, in the, with these kind of movies. It's sappy. It's not really my kind of movie, but, it, I mean, it is good. The acting's really good. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it too, and what I remember of it is that it has, you know, parallel storylines, the flashback and the present day, and both of them are interesting, but I remember thinking that they both kind of deserved their own movie. It didn't really feel like there was a natural sort of connection between the two, and both of them were interesting enough, I think, to warrant their own movie. Yeah, and, and it's it, it kind of feels, do you guys get how, what I'm saying about it? It kind of feels like it's it's pulling from different from different storylines and different movies that do it better. Um, definitely uh, thought, Steel Magnolia is definitely driving Miss Daisy in there. I mean, it's very much a product of its time for sure. Yeah. And, and in the throwback scenes, you've got Mary Stuart Masterson and Mary Louise Parker, who are very good uh, in, in their roles. Um, and it, yeah, when it comes down to it, it's just a little too safe to be at um, the best it could be. Okay. So now the best watch I had this week, um, was actually last Sunday, after we finished recording, I went downstairs and sat down, and the family movie of the night was uh, the latest, um, the latest animated movie to hit Netflix, and that's the Mitchells versus the Machines. And I had to just stop and talk about this really quick because I think it might be my number one of 2021 so far because this movie is out and out nuts, insane, and ridiculous and goofy and i loved every minute of it it tells a story of this weird dysfunctional family uh voiced by danny mcbride and maya rudolph as the parents and they they are taking their daughter to uh to college going cross-country trip and in the middle of this cross-country trip ai robots take over the world and they are somehow the only ones that have yet to be captured and they have to try and save the world and work out their family drama at the same time. It is uh, hysterical. It is so funny. It is so original. Um, it reminds you a lot of, I think, 
I think Chris Lord and Phil or Phil Lord and Chris Miller are part of this uh, in some way, which you can tell. It's got it's got some Lego Movie vibes. It's got some um, some Spider Verse vibes in there, uh, but it's able to play this out really, really good. Uh, there's amazing uh, voice talent in here, where you've got uh, Eric Andre, Olivia Coleman, Fred Armisen, Beck Bennett, Chrissy Teigen, John Legend, Charlene Yee, Blake Griffin, Conan O'Brien. The cast is kind of insane. Uh, I didn't know what to expect from it, and it turned out to be just hysterical and awesome, and I hope the kids kind of get obsessed with it, because that means I can have it on in the background a lot more often. Uh, but yeah, three and a half stars for Mitchell in the versus the Machines. Uh, if you haven't watched it yet, check it out. It's totally worth the watch. Isn't that like the Clattery with the Chance of Meatballs guys? Isn't that the... That's a studio, right? I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's produced by, by Lord and Miller. So, uh, yeah. If you haven't watched, uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines yet, Netflix, check it out. It's, it's worth it. It's worth it. All right. Zach, Criterion Watch, what do you got? All right. So, uh, last week we talked about, um, musicians or a couple weeks ago, we talked about musicians cast in, uh, non-musician roles or as actors. So I thought about that and, and chose a movie that two, where two of the three leads are actually better known as musicians than actors. And that movie is Jim Jarmusch's Down By Law from 1986. Uh, I loved uh, Jarmusch's first big movie, Stranger Than Paradise. In fact, I own it. It also came out on Criterion, but I'd never seen Down By Law. And as mentioned, the, uh, the two main actors in it are Tom Waits and John Lurie, both of whom are probably better known as music, uh, musicians. And then the third lead in it is actually a young Roberto Benigni, um, strangely enough. Uh, this is very much a Jim Jarmusch type movie. Uh, it resembles Stranger Than Paradise in a lot of ways. It's shot in black and white. It has these kind of long but moving cameras, and it kind of shows these kind of down on their down on their luck sort of loser criminals before it was fashionable with Tarantino and Elmore Leonard. In fact, this movie actually felt a lot like Reservoir Dogs in the sense that. It tells the story of these three guys who are in the bayou in Louisiana and they are locked up in prison and they kind of hatch this prison escape plan. And like Reservoir Dogs, the movie isn't so much about the plan to escape or even the escape itself, but kind of deconstructing the kind of uh, filmic almost mythic, uh, you know, cliches in a way, um, and really kind of deconstructing the characters. It's much more a character study than it is um, even a genre piece. Uh, really enjoyed this movie. Um, it, you know, Roberto Benigni, it, he speaks English in the movie. He's an Italian immigrant. If you remember his, uh, you know, uh, Oscar win in 1998, he said that he was running out of English. He, he doesn't know English maybe that well in the movie, but what's kind of funny about him is uh, he's so annoying and frustrating to the Lurie and Waits characters that it kind of bonds them all together in a way. And uh, the movie, I think, in a weird way, ages really well. I see, I, I, like, there's a lot of indie movies today that come out, like some A24 movies, that kind of resemble the structure of this. This movie's like 90 minutes long, and it feels kind of timeless in a way. It feels like, you know, the movie's kind of just 
kind of slowly going along at this pace, but is much more kind of quirky and almost whimsical. I see a lot of that in, in Sundance movies today. So in, in that respect, I think it's, it's aged pretty well. And Jarmusch as a director has aged well. Uh, the DVD is really uh, packed with some really cool special features. Some of my favorite ones include a Q&A with Jarmusch where he answers questions about his hair and the drunken parties on the set because they were filming right outside New Orleans. And he talks about his favorite books, which is mostly like French literature. Like he would be best friends with a Steve Carell character from Little Miss Sunshine. Like he, he loves Proust. Um, and then my favorite feature on it is John Lurie talking about how when he went to Cannes, he, okay, so it's an interview of him at Cannes. He's wearing sunglasses. He looks totally like hungover, strung out. And he actually gives a commentary to the, th that interview, which is really interesting where he talks about how he was strung out. But he also mentions that at the Cannes premiere of this movie, he snorted some sleeping pills, I think, and he fell asleep on Roger Ebert's shoulder. I mean, you, you can't make that stuff up. So really uh, great chemistry between the cast. The movie is, I think, absolutely charming in, in a very similar way to Stranger Than Paradise. I give it three and a half stars. And uh, it's a movie that I, I get the sense has probably influenced a lot of independent filmmakers over the last 30 years. It, it's charming, and I think it, it holds up really well. Well, I don't think Jim Jarmusch is necessarily aged well, because his last movie was one of his worst movies. So I'm not really sure how he aged well. Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, he, well, the fact that he's still making work, you know, like, uh, you know, John Sayles, for example, is someone who very much had his moment in the 80s and 90s, and I think that kind of lapsed a little bit. Lawrence Kasdan would be another example. But I think Jarmusch's work sort of, like David Lynch, like, had this sort of niche that actually had overlaps with a lot of different audiences and, and different Lynch genres. Lynch doesn't make movies anymore either. Well, that's true, but he has a following. I don't know. I, I just think, I think Jarmusch is a director that I think influenced other indie filmmakers and has a style that has been replicated a lot today i mean i know i'm just saying the quality of his movies doesn't age well <laughs> like yeah he was making good movies back then now not so much i mean patterson was great obviously but the dead don't die and the limits of control like he, he's had some bad ones recently that sounds a little judgmental like uh jack black and high fidelity you need to just slow your roll there man okay <laughs> you don't need to push out your opinion on everything uh, I hear you we'll though. Be, I, we'll be getting to plenty of. Those, I think that's a, those that's comments. That's a fair criticism, but it's a cool movie. Have either of you checked that out? Nope, I have not. I think the first okay. one of his I've seen is like Mystery Train. Yeah, Mystery Train's the the next one I want to see. And apparently, Criterion Criterion's put out a bunch of his movies. Night on Earth is another one, and they do this kind of Q and A with him. And I feel like um, it, it's basically audio interviews. And I feel like they should do that for every movie where a director just kind of gives one minute answers to random questions ranging from what are your favorite books to how do you do your hair in the morning. Speaking of Criterion, one of the things I found interesting was this week they announced that um, in August they're releasing uh, the original Netflix movie, uh, Beasts of No Nation, is going to get a, a, a Criterion release. And I think it's sometime next year Sound of Metal's getting a Criterion release. So that, that's, that's pretty cool. I bet there'll they, be some they cool special to, features on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have yet to, to say uh, if and when... Um, the, the two Netflix Best Picture nominees, Mank and uh, Trial of Chicago 7, are getting released. But every other one so far has, so you kind of assume that at some point those two will get will get the Criterion treatment. Alright. Well, let's move on into our featured review. And for this week, we're looking at a movie that, it's been out for a while, but it just got a... Uh, a release that everyone is able to access it now. 
uh, within uh, the last couple weeks, and this movie is called Supernova. I'd like to make a speech. I, uh, well, maybe, maybe Sam will do it for me. Yeah, I'd, I'd love, love to. you do it for me. Now, as most of you will know, I'm slowly losing my ability to remember. And I definitely wouldn't be here if it weren't for this man next to me. Uh, it stars Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci. It is available now to stream on Hulu. Its original release was, I think, sometime in January, uh, out in time to uh, be considered for uh, this last year's Oscar race. Even though it didn't get any love, it was definitely buzzed about at some point. So I'm going to go first on this one. So Supernova was written and directed by Harry McQueen, who's fairly uh, unknown at this point. He's got some acting credits. He's got one other movie that he made that starred him and two other people in it uh, that was made like seven years ago. Other than that, he really hasn't done much. And this movie, uh, Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci star as uh, Sam and Tusker, who are... Uh, who are a couple that have been together for about 20 years, and they decide to go on one last trip together as uh, Stanley Tucci's character, Tusker, is starting to suffer from early-onset dementia. And so they go on a cross-England uh, cross, uh, road trip uh, together to just kind of get away and enjoy each other's company one last time while they still can, and while Stanley Tucci can still remember it. Uh, I thought this movie was was kind of brilliant in its simplicity. Uh, you had two amazing actors at the top of their games giving amazing performances at the heart of it. Uh, honestly, I think this movie would have uh, served itself better if they were the only two people in it, and we were just we were just following them and listening to them the whole time. There is a party scene in the middle that takes up about twenty minutes or so where they're they're with some other people, but uh, I I think the the chemistry between them and and their characters and the interactions they have together are the strength of this movie and and yeah it's best when it's when it's simple like that this is a movie uh about love about companionship about what's best for the people that you love um and uh and it's played out so so brilliantly in these two performances um I, i'm giving it three and a half stars i i think this movie is uh is a real gem and uh, and I think it's a crime that these two weren't talked about more when it came to the acting races uh, for this last award season. But uh, three and a half stars for me. Really, really enjoyed this. Um, and uh, the performances are really what, what drives this movie. And when you have performances like that from these two guys, it, it's hard to argue with, with how good it is. Uh, Zach, you're next. What do you think? Yeah, so I'm going to disagree with you, Terry. I found this movie uh, pretty slow, uh, pretty uh, hard to get through for me. There, it's it's uh, you know even in the first ten minutes, the shots are very kind of slow, and it wants to get you into the emotional state of these characters, um, who I guess have a powerful bond but the movie never i guess the problem i have with the movie is that it always plays it safe like there's nothing there's nothing controversial there's nothing edgy there's nothing risky about this story these are two people who love each other and uh okay it's a gay relationship and one's american one's british i think we've seen that dynamic in other movies uh 
There's not really a real dramatic kind of curveball, except for toward the end of the movie when the Tusker character reveals that he's he wants to basically well without going into too much detail he has plans that he has not confirmed with uh sam the sam character uh and sam is just kind of uh coming to knowledge about these plans but even those scenes kind of feel like obligatory in a way it feels like the movie has to kind of go somewhere um you know the dialogue it's so so it's not particularly revealing in any way we don't really get a good sense of the lives that these characters have shared. I don't think there's a lot of depth. I don't think there's a lot of like mystery about their relationship. Uh, there's a lot of part, there's parties in this movie. They go to the Colin Firth sister's house. There's a lot of good food in this movie. They're very bougie people, I think. Um, and uh, I will say there's a really good moment where Stanley Tucci gives a speech to, I think, uh, Colin Firth's niece. And he, he says this really good quote that I actually wrote down and I put on my Instagram because I thought it was so good. The world will, ne- will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. I was like, hey, that's a pretty cool quote. In a, in a way, though, I feel like this is an Instagram kind of movie. Like you probably look at a screenshot of it on Instagram and you like it. It will, it, it will, I will not remember this movie in two weeks, uh, particularly because the father, Amor, still Alice, uh, even It's My Party did kind of similar stuff so much better than this movie. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, I did not see the magic in it, and I give it two stars. I, I see the point about it being a little slow. I, like, it's not, it's not necessarily a movie you, that, that's going to have you riveted. Um, but I, I think the performances are, are worth it more than in anything else. All right, Todd, I'm, I'm at three and a half. Zach's at two, so split us down the middle. Yeah, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but yeah, I'm in the middle of you two. Um, <laughs> I mean, like like you said, Terry, like this movie could have been an Oscar movie, at least for the performances, if Bleecker Street had actually pushed it. Because, like, nobody saw it, I feel like. And it's a road trip movie. It's a really easy sell. But they went with, like, The Assistant and other stuff like that. But they really just kind of took the whole season off. So they really didn't push any movies. So that's why this movie is just sort of forgotten. But uh, the relationship between the characters feels authentic. It's it's kind of a somber movie. And it doesn't try to be anything other than what it is, which I kind of respect. It doesn't throw all that subtext about forbidden romance at you. Which I really respect. I, I, I like that it didn't try to be controversial because until you stop talking about it, then it's not going to, then it's gonna not, it's always gonna be a thing. And um, it's not a depressing illness movie necessarily either. It's more about life than it is about death. But like these movies, it seems like younger people make better movies about this kind of thing than older people. Like uh, like Sarah Polly, Florian Zeller, and Harry McQueen's only in his like mid thirties. Like he shouldn't understand what it's like to be an older man dying of dementia. But I mean. Like, it seems more authentic, and it seems more objective because of that. And it's really sort of a classy movie, but having said that, eventually something has to happen, and nothing really happens. It's, it, it kind of, it really does border on boring throughout, and, but it is a short movie. It's, I mean, it does, it's not really necessarily inherently compelling just because it's a, a sincere movie. So I give it a slight th- thumbs down at two and a half stars. Yeah, that, that kind of is right in the middle of the two of us, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like I hear you and I hear you, but yeah, I, I hear both, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I feel like this movie wants to be an Oscar contender. It certainly has the, the look, the feel of one, 
But you're right, Todd. I mean, it has to, the story has to go somewhere, right? It can't just all be these kind of celebrations of life and this, uh, I, I mean, flashbacks might have been interesting. I don't know. Um, maybe uh, uh, more, more interesting uh, side characters. There's no humor in this movie at all. There's like, there, there's nothing at all to laugh at. And when you've got, St particularly Stanley Tucci, who I think is a brilliant comic actor, or can be in a sly way, like that's really, you know, kind of wasted in this movie. I, I feel like these characters, if, they, if, these, if these were real people, particularly the fact that they're both creative people, they would be a lot more quirky and maybe edgy in the way that they speak and uh, their dynamic, and this movie just feels so, like, milquetoast. I don't know. I feel like if it did have that stuff in it, you, you'd be saying it was way too conventional, and why didn't it take any risks and be something that not, hadn't we hadn't seen before? And I think that's kind of what it did. I mean, you, yeah, you said that there's other movies that have approached the subject. Well, I mean, you nev we've never seen a movie quite like this, where it's just two people just kind of coping with what's going to happen and do you forget about it and just live out your life? Do you confront it, address it and hit it head on? I mean, it's, I, I thought it, I thought it was a fascinating concept and, um, and the performances alone turned it into something, um, something that borders on special. Yeah, like, they're, they're just living with each other, which I which I get. Like, uh, there was a movie, Paddleton, a few years ago on Netflix that was kind of like that. But, like, that that still has some sort of a story arc. I, I mean, I, I like that it's that it feels authentic. I just, I kind of got bored of it. Maybe it should have you been You know what, the, what this movie is? This movie is like the Bell and Sebastian album that Dick played on Monday morning at Championship Final. I'm sorry, I had to. And I want to be Jack Black, and I want to rip it up and play blast walking on sunshine that's why i felt the whole time watching it i i don't even know how to process that <laughs> I, don't, I don't know either i don't know either uh all right well i gave it three and a half todd gave it two and a half zach gave it two it's easily available on hulu if you want to check it out um if you're fans of either of these two actors and want to see them in a completely different gear than we've seen them in in a long time uh, check out Supernova on Hulu. All right. Well, if you haven't noticed yet, we're talking about high fidelity today. I heard the condescension in that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was my pick. I love it, this it freaking is, movie. It is Zach's pick. Zach, uh, Zach decided that we were going to do a high fidelity. <clears throat> and I, I kept on saying, I think it's the most high fidelity thing ever. Like, I feel like the guys in the in the record shop would appreciate the fact that we're doing it a year after it was cool to do it because it's no longer an anniversary movie. Uh, so in celebration of its 21st year of since its release, we're, we're talking about High Fidelity. Um, all right, so Zach is... Or I think we're all pretty good fans of this movie, but Zach has seen this movie a ridiculous number of times. And so... Uh, and Todd and I, I think, had only seen it once coming into this week. So... Todd and I came up with uh, trivia questions for Zach to see uh, if he can, if he truly is the high fidelity master here. And uh, Todd, we didn't go over this. How many questions do you have? I've got ten. I have eight questions. You have eight questions. That's a lot All of right. Questions. Well, I'm. Maybe yeah, it is. It is. Well, I can get rid of one because I think this might be the first time that one of the questions has been spoiled before the start of the 
of the uh, actual deep dive. Oh, that's and, happened before. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So I, I'm going to have to get rid of one of the questions. So I've got nine. Todd's got eight. So I'll go what was first. It that, what, was that Walking like on Sunshine? Was yeah, walk, Walking on Sunshine <laughs> was, was the song that was played. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'll go first and we'll kind of go back and forth. Uh, several of mine uh, might have to do with some top five lists. We'll see. All right. So including the first one. Are you ready, Zach? I'm ready? ready. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. So my first question is, what were Penny Hardwick's top five recording artists? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. I didn't write it down. <laughs> it was, uh, I know Cat Stevens and Elton John are on the list. I can't they remember. They are on the I list. I can't remember anyone else. And now Elton John plays. Yeah. Uh, Carly yeah. Simon, Carol King, and James Taylor were the other ones. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the top fives, I'm not, I'm just not, well, you can, you can ask them, but I don't know if I can remember all I of them. I only have one, and it's yeah. an really important one, so I, I... Okay. Because otherwise, right. yeah, it would be super obscure, and I know this isn't sideways. <laughs> I would yeah. never be able to tell you uh, Rob's top five side one track ones. I, I couldn't remember those for the <laughs> life of me. I've never heard any of those songs. Oh, uh, it smells like Teen yeah, Spirit. Yeah, never heard I'm Smells sure. Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, sure. Oh, except for that one, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and wh- what do you say? Uh, it was uh, it was a Beethoven's song that Jack fifth. Black sings at the end. Uh, the Barry or the. Let's get it on. Oh, yeah, let's, let's get, get it on, on. Marvin Gaye. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Todd, uh, your first question. What, what's the intersection that the store is located on? Uh, Honor and um, I can't remember something. Milwaukee. Milwaukee, okay. Alright, well my next question was going to be what song does Barry turn on as soon as he walks into the shop for the first time? Uh, and But my next question is related. So after Walking on Sunshine, uh, how does Barry describe the second song on his Monday mixtape, and who actually was the song by? I, I think I'm confused by your question. Can you clarify? What do you mean by that? So, so he, so he, he comes in with his Monday mixtape that starts uh-huh. with Walking on Sunshine, and then he's describing the next track on his Monday mixtape, and he describes it one way, and then says it's by a certain band. I don't know. It's a little Latin loopy loop. Oh. And it's by the Righteous Brothers. Okay, I know. What you're, okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was that was a tough one, Terry. That was. <laughs> I know what you're talking one. about, now, but one. I didn't know. All right. And then and then Dick Dick says that it was by someone else or a different version. No, that, he, that's he that's the line. Like the Righteous Brothers. That's a, that's when Rob says it's it's not bullshit to state a preference, which is a great line in the movie. It is. It is. All right. And true in real life. What is the reason Barry gives for why he won't sell the guy I just called to say I love you? Uh, it, it, it's, well, go find it at the mall, he says, and, uh... No, right when, uh, yeah, but right after he says, why, why won't you sell it, then he, what does it say? It's, it's like, it's crappy something. I can, I can hear the line, I just can't say it. I don't know. Yeah, cool. what yeah is it? it's sentimental tacky crap. <laughs> nice. Sentimental tacky. Uh, that's why. <laughs> uh, all right. Next question. What three books has uh, has Rob read? Uh, Love in the Time of Cholera. Yep. Unbearable Lightness of Being and yep. Cash by Johnny Cash. That those three are correct. Uh, I also found uh, in the book he gives a top five uh, favorite books. Yes, um, uh, and I've read the book. Oh, you have. Okay, so so his top five favorite books. I found this list are number one, Cash by Johnny Cash. Two is Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Three is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. 
Four is the Trouser Press Guides to Rock. And number five is, I don't know, probably something by Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> he also gives his top five films, too. Although I can't remember. The only one that I can remember is the early 80s uh, French movie Diva, which he shared the love of that movie with one of his girlfriends. I remember him talking about that in the book. Oh, see, the, the list I have here does not have that as one of his top five favorite movies. Okay, maybe, has, I'm, maybe I'm misremembering. It has but... Blade Runner, Cool Hand Luke, The First Two Godfathers, which will count as one, Taxi Driver, and The Shining. Okay, I'm, I'm misremembering. None of those okay. are mentioned in the movie, there, although there are a few movies mentioned. Yeah. Um, what is the number on Rob's CD player in his apartment? I have no it's clue. It's very prominently shown when he puts in... Uh, What's her face is CD for the first time? Marie, Marie, is that her name? Marie DeSalle. I have no idea. It's five twenty-two. It, like at the top Good of the screen, know. it says very boldly, "Compact Disc Player five twenty-two. I know he wears a shirt with the number six on it. I was wondering. That if was my was next question. What question? number is on okay. Rob's gray sweater? Yeah. And then he Keep wears a the shirt. The next scene that has seven on it. All right, th- this may be a this may be a bad a bad question, but we're gonna go with it. Uh, when will Dick tell Barry that Laura and uh, Rob broke up? Well, I, I after he tells him something after he after he sees him next, some something like that. Like when he says that he has things to tell Barry, and that's when her, he'll tell him. I'll I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. He tells him the other stuff. That's one of my favorite lines in the in the whole movie. It's it's, uh, yeah, I, I have some other stuff to tell him anyways, so I'll just tell him that after I tell him, the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, there's a lot of great dick quotes that are that include <laughs> the word um and yeah. 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 All right, Todd. Uh, well, the next one was spoiled, so I'll go to the next one. What are the top five reasons why Rob misses Laura? Uh, okay, well, uh, her smell and her taste, the way she laughs, the thing that she well, does... sort of. That's sense of humor. Sense that, of humor. That's all, part okay. of, that's all part of the same rant, yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, her, the way she moves her leg at night. Yeah, that thing she does in bed with her feet, yeah. Um, sense of integrity or grace. I can't remember exactly what he says, but something along those yeah, lines. Character. It makes her, makes her, gives her character, Yeah. Um, how many is that? Is that four? That's four. I, I can't remember the last one. The other one, he just, like, blurts and then he moves on. It's how she walks. Okay, that's right. Nice. See, I, 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 can, I knew that I one was an important one. You should have known. <laughs> Alright, uh, what are the four things that Laura could have told Liz about Rob that made her hate him? Well, this is an interesting one because it's four or five, kind of depending on how you're counting it. But true, uh, true. loaning the money, which is yep. either four or five thousand dollars, not quite sure. It was four. Yeah, but then Rob says that it was five later. Oh so yeah. I was wondering if one of you was was going to ask that, and I was going to I was prepared to come at you with that if I got that wrong. <laughs> um, uh, the the abortion. Um, <clears throat> The uh, and then the rant about the abortion, uh, the ill time bout of self righteousness, as Rob says. And uh, let's see what else. Uh, that when he says that he w- wasn't really happy in the relationship and he was maybe looking around. And uh, and then what was the other one? Is that all of them, or is there one more that I'm missing? Well, you, they you all missed the combined. first one, which is he slept with someone so else. He slept with someone else. Okay, cool. Yeah, not cool, but cool. Right, right. 
Uh, what is the name of the skaters band? Uh, the Kinky Wizards. The Kinky Lizards, pretty sure. That was Wizards. I thought it was Wizards. It's, I think that's what it says on the poster. It says, they say Lizards. I, I watched it twice. They, they, they say Lizards. <laughs> I think we need to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're, it's like Barry and Dick debating whether there was a the at the beginning of that song. <laughs> like there's, right. I can't remember what song it was, but yeah. It was just a title. It wasn't even the song. Uh, an ode to what? some Russian thing or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what percent chance do Rob Nine. and Laura have of getting back together? Well done. Okay. Uh, what sports team's hat is on the clay mannequin in the store? Ooh. I've, Ooh. I have no clue. I think uh, the hat Cubs? might actually be clay as well. No, it's not the Cubs. It's the Yankees. It's in the window. Nice. I like I like Todd's questions like about you know what's in the frame. Very like Jacques Tati or something. I mean there right. is a lot of detail. But... Uh, what film does Rob hypothetically debate? Evil with Dead Barry? Two. Yeah. Okay. What are the two like inspirations for Green Day according to Dick? Stiff Little Fingers, and uh, um, The Clash. There you go. What are Rob's top five dream jobs before edits? Okay, so he uh, a, a film director, but not German or silent. Yeah. Always interesting. Um, <laughs> record producer at Atlantic Records. Yep. I can't remember the years. It's like 69 to 73. Or yeah, I don't like need to that. worry about the years. Okay. Um, architect, which yep. he later sort of recants and says uh, record store owner she instead. Recants. And, uh, let's see, the first two are, like, music-related. I can't, is it, is it uh, music critic? Journalist for the Rolling Stone. Ro- journalist for Rolling Stone. William Miller. Okay. That was his, his William answer. Miller. He basically wanted to be William Miller. And the last one's musician. Yeah, and I think he really just wants to be the, uh, William Miller, <laughs> just, just to get the free garb, just to get the free albums. Oh, it's totally what it was. Yeah. Who he would meet and, uh, and the free stuff he would get. Mm-hmm. All right, Todd, do you have any I more? respect for that. No, you know, he answered one of the questions without uh, prompt, so. Uh, all right, so my, my last question are, what are the three names of Barry's band? Uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive, Sonic Death Monkey, and uh, there's a third one. Oh, it's the, it's the one at the end. It's like um, something that rhymes it's like bury me in the we three or something like that i can't remember exactly it, it's the one i didn't have written down it's like the oh the berry jive and the uptown Down five, five yeah it yeah all right that's all i have it's more fun when i go head to head we, we go to head head to head yeah but there was no way any of us were ever going to compete with you on that <laughs> i like I, know, I, I, I don't know the movie near enough all right, well, let, let's let's uh, talk about this. So, Zach, you picked it. Tell us why you picked it, what you love about it, what it's about, and your experience with it. Well, as I told Todd, I feel like if uh, if we were in a Christopher Nolan movie and our brains got erased or something, um, this would be a great kind of replacement for Sideways. It's like a great understudy. It's like a, like a little brother to Sideways because it's also about a self-loathing loser um, who uh, basically messes up every single relationship he's in with women, and uh, he has these d- this dysfunctional relationship with his male uh, friends. 
Um, but uh, it's also fundamentally a movie, as Terry said earlier, about uh, growing up, being in your 30s, except also like not growing up, not wanting to grow up. And I think most importantly, it's a movie about, uh, I think as Rob puts it, it's not um, what you are that's important, it's what you like. Or actually, I'm butchering that. It's like, it's not what, it's not what you're like, it's what you like. And uh, I think I think that is a credo uh, on this podcast because uh, you know it's about what we like. Anyway, this is a brilliant movie, one of my favorite movies from the two thousands. Apparently, Terry had it number three of of his two thousand list, which is higher than mine. So Terry likes it more, maybe I don't know. Um, but it's a movie that I think um, has aged really well. I like well in some respects, in other respects not so much that maybe we'll talk about. Uh, I read the book, love the book. I watched uh, the TV show on Hulu with, with Zoe Kravitz. I actually that was the main reason I got Hulu was just to watch the TV series. Um, and, uh, I think this movie is wonderful. Like it's the kind of movie that I put on when I've had a shitty day and uh, there's been a lot of them this last year and it puts me in a better mood because these characters are so hilarious. I could watch the dynamic between Rob, Barry and Dick all day. It kind of was the dynamic that I had in college a little bit. I think there are a lot of bros out there who like this movie. I get it, but it's special for me, and uh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's number four on my 2000 list. Oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, I'd only seen it once before we uh, before this week, and uh, it was one of those where I was like, "Now what? What was so great about this?" And then I watched it like, "Oh yeah, that that's what it is." And I think this movie more than any other movie, I think it's how we think <laughs> just as, as as like the three of us the way we think and talk about movies and just stuff in general like i feel like we we could be the the, the those three characters in the record shop every day coming up with random top five lists i mean heck we made a podcast so we could just sit here and come up with random top five lists that's kind of why we did it um and and yeah, they, they think the way we think. They they act the way we act. They uh, they process through stuff together the way we do it. Uh, it gets us in a way that I've never seen anything really ever get us before. Uh, and uh, and for that alone, uh, it, it's it's an amazing watch. And then uh, you top it all off with it's just such a great story too that is that doesn't. It, I mean, it doesn't pull any punches. At, with any of the characters in in who they are and uh it 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 really does everything it can to want you to really hate the main character which is a fascinating approach um but yeah it's just it's just an an amazing movie in so many ways Todd, how about you yeah i had seen it once before watching it for this and i i gave it like at a medium three star kind of feel i mean i don't know where it is now i mean maybe higher maybe lower i don't know but it's it's i I feel like i I appreciate the idea of it more than the actual execution of it it's not i don't really think it's necessarily a good movie but it is interesting to watch for a while and uh it's uh, i don't know i mean i mean we'll talk about review (laughs) we'll, we'll talk about it but i mean I, I, I do I do like some of the characters and I, I do like some of the storylines. It's way too long. Uh, but 
I, I mean, I, I can see what you say. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, I, I can see how we could be those characters, but I also feel like Zach's worst take of all time was that he thinks that I am Dick from this movie, and that's okay, just, we, it's the, probably we, the dumbest thing that's ever come out of his mouth, which is saying something. Yeah, but. it is saying something. <laughs> we, we need to talk about that for a second. Okay, because I, I was actually texting Adam about this last night. By the way, did, did Adam send you his thoughts about this movie? He did, okay, he did. I, Do you I want wanna, me to read them? Or well, in, in a second, but yeah. what, what I want to ex- explain, because I need to clarify this, is when I met Todd for the first time, I thought, oh, he's kind of like Dick because he's because bald. Because he's played and he, by a guy named Todd. And he's, and he's bald. played by a guy yes, named Todd okay, and he doesn't talk a whole lot. And that is where it ends. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Once I got to know you more, I realized you're a lot more like Rob than you are like Dick. But I think on first impression, there was, more, there was a strong Dick vibe that I liked. However, what I will also add, though, and I told this to Adam, is the scene when Dick is flirting with Sarah Gilbert, Anna Moss, and uh, he's talking about the stiff little fingers as the influence on uh, uh, Green Day. When he rolls his eyes, that is what you do, man. That, is, that was like <laughs> dead on Todd right there, the eye roll. That was like uncanny. Nonverbal so, communication, so, yeah. So I was watching this last night, and I, uh, and I asked my wife, uh, does, does Dick uh, rem- look like Todd? And, and she said, no, but Dick looks like Anthony Kerrigan from Barry, and that guy looks like Todd. That's so nice. he looks like a guy who looks like Todd. That, that's, what, that's what Cassie's take on it is. That's, that's <laughs> deep, <laughs> deep wisdom right here. All right, well, let, let, me get, let me get Adam's thoughts out here. So Adam had never seen High Fidelity before, and since we were deep diving it, he decided to watch it with us. And uh, here, here's what he said. He said, so being my first time watch of this film, I really didn't know what to expect going in. I found it super enjoyable. Can't picture anyone but John Cusack being in that role. Maybe that's one reason why I love America's Sweethearts and his earlier films as much as I do because of him. Love the side characters, and Dick is totally Todd. Uh, Jack Black is Jack Black, and I'm not even mad about it. Super enjoyable watch, an easy three and a half stars, and his new number seven of 2000. Yeah. Well, he didn't talk to me before that, so. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that that'll bump it down a half star. Um, see, I don't feel like us three are necessarily those. I I feel like there's a mixture a little bit. I I feel like I'm sometimes a mixture of Rob and Bear and Barry. I don't think Terry is really any of these characters. Maybe a little bit Barry sometimes. However, the dynamic when I lived with Joshua and Gertzen, that was the three of us. I was Barry. <laughs> Gertson was obviously Dick, and Joshua was obviously Rob. And there were times in that apartment when when Joshua came at, at me and tried to strangle me over something controversial, I would say. And that was like living in high fidelity. I mean, that was it was the it was the movie. It was the world of the movie. And 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 then warm beer every once in a while was like you know could be all three of them at once. I I can I can totally see that. I can totally see that dynamic. <laughs> So this movie got like very little awards love. I'm looking here. It got an adapted screenplay nomination from BAFTA because it's Stephen Frears. Um, why why didn't this get any more any other love? I mean, Stephen Frears. Yeah, I get. I guess it was kind of they they had to pick one of them. But I mean, uh, Stephen Frears usually got gets Oscar. Oscar love too. It's kind of interesting that it didn't really get anything. 
it is strange that Stephen Frears is the director. This is that's, unlike that's any too. any movie that he. But the only real comparison is like Ridley Scott doing Matchstick Men. It it really just kind of sticks out in his filmography, and it makes no sense. Um, but I think it's actually maybe his best film. Um, I think the problem was that it was released kind of earlier in the year, and uh, Todd, Todd just rolled his eyes just like Dick did. It was like it was an uncanny moment. Um, well, you don't agree that this is Stephen Fear's best film? No, of course it's The Grifters. Oh, well, okay. That's, I think that's an acceptable claim to make. I also really like uh, My Beautiful Laundrette. But it's, it's the strangest movie of, of his career. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, was just, it was too much of a rom-com. But by the way, one of the things I love about this movie is that you watch it and you ask yourself... It's one of those movies where you ask yourself, why can't more movies be, be this smart, be this funny? It seems very easy to write. And yet it's it it's not. Like there other if, if it were that easy to make a movie this good with these characters and this dialogue, then there would be more movies like it, but there aren't. And uh I think it's a it's a it's a shame that the Oscars overlooked it that year. Especially because Ebert also loved this movie and put it on his end of the year top ten list. But he liked Almost Famous more. True. He also liked Wonder Boys more. <laughs> yeah, I, I said this is number four on my list. Uh Almost Famous is number one. So I, I, it's just sad that they both had to come out the same year. Um, I I think one of the one of the hardest things to do for a movie is for it to feel lived in, and and that's really what this movie feels like. Like I I've, I haven't watched any of the show, and I would love to go back and watch it now because I feel like a show with these people would be so much fun because uh, they are just. That they are characters that you just know immediately and you understand them and you get their their eccentricities, you get who they are, and you just want to hang out with them. And that and I think that's that's so hard to come up with, that dynamic, uh, in the context of a movie. And and this does it perfectly. Yeah, I mean for many years I was clamoring, you know, this should be a TV show, right? I mean the 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 possibilities are endless with these three main characters. And, you know, it probably could have been like a stupid CBS sitcom, like a kind of How I Met Your Mother type thing. It's an interesting TV series. I mean, it's very much like when we do our recasting, it's like the exact uh, idea of it, except um, I, I suspect that the rationale behind the TV series was to make it a more inclusive cast and making um, Rob a black woman in New York City and kind of making the cast a little bit more diverse and not necessarily more gender fluid. It's a really interesting show. I'm kind of surprised it wasn't picked up for a second season. It's only one season on, on Hulu. It's 10 episodes long, and it basically covers the whole movie, but stretched out in 10 episodes. I can't help but watch the show and think of how much I love the movie and how I think the movie's better. But it does add add in some unique components to it that are or maybe I'll, I'll mention as, as we kind of go along, but I think it's a cool example of, uh, of uh, how like a recasting kind of does change it in, in, in some ways. Is this the best John Cusack ever was? No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I, I think so. I, well, I might argue it, it could be the... the he's the amazing in this movie. What, what was he better in? A lot. I, I mean, say anything, of course. I mean, that, that would be, the, yeah, that, or, or the Grifters. That was the one. Yeah, the Grifters. So, maybe, those would be the only two real arguments you could make. Maybe Eight Men Out. No. 
I just say be. like uh, yeah, John Cusack in this role is not one of the better parts of the movie. That's that's what I mean. We'll get into that later, but uh, you know. Wow, I, it sounds like Todd really did not like this movie very much. Can we, can we just go into that? Like, uh, I mean, I, I'm really curious. I, I, I was hoping you'd, you'd like it. Like Barry, you know, I wanted this to be a conversation starter on a Monday morning. Like, I, I love this movie. We, I guess we could just jump to flaws, but like, what, what, what's we'll your get, beef we'll get with it, it later. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the <laughs> okay, exact thing to say, up. you know. I mean, does it age well? Probably not, but we'll get into that later. Okay, so we'll, we'll go, okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into, uh, let's get into our Mount Rushmore then. Uh, that we're going uh, for this one. And what we're going to do is the Mount Rushmore of Chicago films. Uh, films based in Chicago. Uh, I have no idea what the consensus would be, especially with the uh, shots thrown by Todd on High Fidelity. So, I mean, um, we could say Chicago. <laughs> I mean, we could. At the, or the band Chicago. Maybe that. I don't know. All right, let's hear your picks. Okay. Uh, let's see. I I kind of want to go first, because I don't want anyone to take mine. So I'm just going to do it. Ferris I'm going Bueller. first. That's what I get for hosting. Um, and the funny thing is, so last week we were talking about what our Mount Rushmore was going to be, and, uh, and two of the suggestions were Chicago set films and films that broke the fourth wall. And I thought to myself, well... No matter which one of those it is, my pick is still going to be Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, and uh, so that's what I'm going with because, I mean, that is, I would say, the the only movie that I can think of that is a true, like, tour of Chicago. Like, like that is, like, I mean, there's a scene in Wrigley Field. There's a scene at the at the Museum of Art. Um, there's it, it, it is Chicago in so many ways. So, I mean, you got to go Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And he breaks the fourth wall. So, there's that. All right, Todd. I've been in Chicago for about five hours, and it was all in the airport. So, I don't really know what <laughs> Chicago's like, necessarily, other than what I see in the movies. Uh, yeah, I mean, Terry took the John Hughes route, which he could have said Home Alone or The Breakfast Club. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, the other thing that sticks out to me about Chicago is it's uh, gangster movies. So, I guess I'll say The Untouchables. I mean, you could say, like, The Public Enemy, the, like, basically any movie about Capone. But uh, The Untouchables is all in Chicago. And that, I mean, it's obviously a great film. So, I guess I'll go with that. Never seen it. What? Doesn't nope. surprise me. Wow. I've seen. Well, the... I, mean, I mean, it is an '80s movie. You you do have a blind spot there. That's true. I'll trust what you say, Todd. Well, I I guess I'm gonna have to go with High Fidelity. I think this is the quintessential Chicago movie. And as the, I believe the person on on this podcast who's spent the most time in Chicago, not that that gives me any credibility. Uh, I think it. If that, by that you mean any? Then yes. I, you know, I, I like this movie is very clearly set. It's not, it's not like the movie Chicago, which doesn't feel like I, that feel that movie to me feels like it was shot on a back lot somewhere. Like this movie feels like it was shot in the city, lots of different neighborhoods, some residential, some urban. You got the L train, you got downtown area, you got uh, Hyde Park. Uh, I think that this movie really encapsulates Chicago really nicely, and so obviously I love it. And uh, yeah, my pick. I, I, I since it's apparently not going to be our default. All right, so what's our default then? What's our consensus pick? 
And I, I, the only one I, other one I had written down was Home Alone. Yeah, I, I had Home Alone as well. I have uh, Hoop Dreams, Drinking Buddies, then The Big Sick. I also had My Best Friend's Wedding, The Company, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and uh, obviously the greatest Chicago set TV series is Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm good going with Hoop Dreams. If, uh, I mean, you get into documentary territory, that's something different, but it is Hoop Dreams, so. Yeah. Hoop Dreams? I mean, it's obviously the best movie that we've mentioned. I mean, I feel like it's a little bit of a cop-out, but how can you not go with Hoop Dreams, I guess? Let's not do it. Let's go with something fictional. Come on. We, 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 can, okay. be, we can be more uh, creative. Says the one who mentioned Sissical and Ebert. Something fictional. I already didn't do that. <laughs> well, but it, it was... You, uh, uh, I know, not a documentary. a documentary. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what are we going with then? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I want to say Drinking Buddies, but I, I'm pretty sure you guys haven't watched it. Nope. Haven't seen it. Okay, maybe we just go with Hoop Dreams. Let's do it. Backtrack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, t- Terry said uh, Home Alone. I would be tempted to agree with that, but it's, it's like, not necessarily... Like, it takes, it's, it's more a movie that takes place in Chicago than is actually about Chicago. It's true. It's true. Which to me doesn't matter because I've never been there, so I don't know. <laughs> Just like our Boston movie thing, it's like I have no idea what Boston's actually like. I've seen it in the movies, <laughs> but that's about it. Well, I know Chicago. I mean, I'll, I don't know if you guys know this, but my mom lived um, like three blocks away from the school that Arthur and William went to. This the 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 uh, the school that they bust them out to. So like I've walked by that school several times. Let's just do it. Let's go with Hoop Dreams. Why not? Steve Hoop James, James, man. So, so some, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Untouchables, High Fidelity, and Hoop Dreams. Solid like list. It. Mm-hmm. It's a good list. It's a good list. All right. Let's dive into our uh, our recasting here. So, recasting High Fidelity. We're going to start uh, start with Rob. Um, this is a, a, a slight side conversation, but I just have to throw it out there. Um I hate the new IMDb pages. I, I think it's I think it's stupid and horrible. Yeah, I I, say that. yeah, it is kind of scattered. It it is it is nowhere near as organized as it was before. And you got to look for the stuff you want to find now. Anyways, um, so yeah, Rob Gordon played by John Cusack. Uh, let's see here. We're gonna go to Todd first. Todd. Who's your new Rob? Uh, well, I mean, I feel like John Cusack is probably too old for the role. I went with Charlie McDermott, who is, uh, uh, he's, he was in Frozen River, and he was also in that show The Middle. I mean, he, he's, he's got that kind of asshole quality that will make him a little bit more likable than John Cusack. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not hard to go up from John Cusack, so I guess I'll go with him. And plus, I also have this thing where I also thought, what Zach said about the TV show, this totally is basically the cast of the league, uh, minus Pete, but Ruxin would obviously be Rob. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. And I'll keep going with that throughout the cast if you want me to. (laughs) Keep going, keep going, okay. All right, 
Zach, who's your Rob? All right, well, I, my gimmick for this list was that uh, this was a uh, British book that was transplanted to Chicago in the United States, so I decided if I was going to recast it, it was going to be all British actors. Let's keep it in the spirit of the book. And my Rob um, was, I think, the most obvious pick, which is Daniel Radcliffe. Cute, lovable, but also maybe a bit of a dark side and a bit of a narcissistic loser. Uh, okay. Todd has a puzzled look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> not, not what I was expecting. All right, I, I like, I like your uh, your take on going with the uh, with an all British cast, though. That's not what I did. Uh, my Rob is Miles Teller. Um, cause just for a similar similar thing as you guys were saying, he's kind of got that that like douchebag vibe to him that he can have almost like what was it spectacular now um yeah rob is like a grown-up version of his character from the spectacular now so that's what i'm going with all right then let's go to uh let's go to laura next played by i don't know even yelly is that how you say it i have no idea i have no idea (laughs) how can you have that many j's in a name um be danish i guess that's how uh all right so uh who would play laura todd uh okay so this is like a nothing character she's i mean she's pretty terrible and it's a terrible character like she does absolutely nothing <laughs> so it does it's, it could be basically anybody and the person that i thought of that looks like her is mamie gummer uh which is meryl streep's daughter i believe yep and uh from the league it'd be jenny of course because she would make it interesting All right, Zach, how about you? Uh, I completely disagree with Todd's take. I think Laura is a fascinating and compelling oh, character. Oh, wow, fascinating. It's a stock character in so many other movies. And, and, and this I one. think and even Hyla. She's awful. Like Razzie oh, Worthy. I think, oh, are you kidding? She's amazing <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> like that. that, that, say that. Uh, wow, okay. I went with Jesse Buckley. There, you can like that pick, right, Todd? You're a fan of her. Of course. That would be a good pick. So I I couldn't get over the fact that she is Danish, and so I went with the closest thing I could find and went with Alicia Vikander. All right. Okay. And that, that's what I got there. That's that's about with it. With an Oscar winner, I like it. Yep. All right, Barry, played by Jack Black. Todd. Well, the current Jack Black, I guess, is Clark Duke, so that seems like a pretty easy one. I didn't want to go with Josh Gad, because that'd be dumb. He'd be terrible in that in that movie, so <laughs> Clark Duke is what I went with. And, of course, in uh, in The League, that would, uh, that would, ha- it would be like, it'd be a hybrid of Kevin and Taco, who are, of course, brothers, because Kevin is, like, has the, the Barry sensibilities, but Taco's the musician, so, you know, a mix of the two. <laughs> I I love this this shout out to the league. This is great. All right, Zach. All right. Well, um, I had to go with someone who's not a formally trained actor because at the time of this movie, you know, Jack Black was known for Tenacious D. And I think part of the suspense of this movie is at the end of the movie, whether he's really going to be a good singer or not. Um, So I had two in mind, although uh, one of them is kind of too old. Uh, The main one I had was Ed Shireen um, or Sheeran. 
um, because I think he kind of looks a little goofy and I think he could pull off that persona. But obviously the actor today who could pull off that persona is uh, James Corden, but I think he's a little too old at this point. I thought you were trying to say Ed Screen. Like, I forget what he's in. Like, Deadpool? I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I thought that's what oh, you were I'm trying to say when you said Shireen. Like, <laughs> I'm not familiar with that actor. Well, well, Ed Sheeran you should be familiar with. <laughs> I like, 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 it's someone who's never talked about having kids before, you know? Like, like he says about Charlie, like... <laughs> Alright, I... I didn't have anybody written down because I couldn't think of any of them that I liked and I really don't like either of yours either. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I really you don't like know. Clark Duke. He does all the Jack Black roles yeah. now. I mean, yeah, yeah, kind of, but he's not nowhere near. I, I don't know. Of course, Jack Black's one of a kind. Yeah. Yeah. Like even more than like we did try to recast him in Shallow Hal too. And that one that was at least a little easier to do, but I, this is like the most like, like like Adam said, Jack Black. Jack Black is playing Jack Black in this movie, and that's that's, yeah. So I don't know. I think he could still repri- reprise his role. I think it could be just as good um, as a as a fifty something year old Jack Black as it was as a thirty something year old Jack Black. Well, I, I, th- well, I think Barry still goes to that It could have been John Belushi store. at a time. It could have been Chris Farley at a time. It was Jack Black in this, because that was the era, so now the next one is probably Clark Duke or whoever. I mean, I think, isn't, isn't like, Miles Teller playing uh, Belushi in a movie coming out? Like, I mean... Is he? There's a... I heard that. I think That's so. That's interesting. I don't know. At least that was the plan. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go Jonah Hill. No, it might have been Emil Hirsch. It might, I think it was Emil Hirsch and Miles Teller playing, like, Belushi and Ackroyd or something. That's, that sounds interesting. I'll I'll go I'll go Jonah Hill, who's also kind of in that mold of but okay. he's a little he might be a little too old now, but I'll go with Jonah Hill. Alright. Dick. Brought to us by Todd Luiso. Todd. Uh so this one uh I think the one that fits Dick the best is Zach Woods. He ha- he has that like social awkwardness, like down to a T that he showed in Silicon Valley. I also thought of Derek Waters, who's the host of Drunk History. I feel like he like if he was actually in a movie, this would be a really funny thing to see him in. And of course, in the league, it was Andre, because he basically plays the same role. Andre knows Dick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Zach Woods also is a uh, Gabe from The Office. God. Yeah, well, that's Just something people don't watch. People watch Silicon Valley. <laughs> right, right. So many more people have seen Silicon Valley than. Uh, in the office. Zach, who's your who's your dick? Uh, I went with Alex Lothar, who is also the main actor on uh, I'm, uh, The End of the Effing World. He plays an awkward teenager on that show, and I feel like he could be an awkward kind of man-child like Dick is in, uh, in the British recasting, and uh, I wish he was in more stuff. He's also got kind of big ears, which I think works well for Dick. Uh, so, uh, Without even realizing it, the reason why I settled for Jonah Hill for Barry is because my dick is Michael Sarah. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Think, think like, think like. 
Scott Pilgrim uh, style Michael Sarah. The thing is, I think Michael Sarah is too recognizable at this point. It needs to be someone with less, you know, instant recognizability as a celebrity. Dick blends in with the background. Even when he talks about how he wants to be with a musician, all he says is just, just somewhere in the background. All right, well, the last one we're going to recast altogether is Charlie, brought to us by Catherine Zeta-Jones. Todd, what do you got? I don't think it necessarily matters. I mean, pretty much anybody, Margot Robbie or whoever in that age range could play it. Uh, but in the league, of course, it's Sophia. Ruxin's wife, because I, I think that'd actually be interesting, but she definitely is too old. But ten years ago, when this cast would have actually been these characters, then Sophia, that'd be my pick for sure. <laughs> All right, Zach. All right, well, I had to go someone non-British here, here um, in part because Catherine Zeta-Jones is, like, vaguely European in this movie. We can't really tell where. It's a very cosmopolitan character. And the obvious choice for me was Elizabeth Olsen. I mean, maybe that's because it's a very similar character to her character in uh, Ingrid Goes West. But watching this movie again, I, was, I thought Elizabeth Olsen would kill that role today. Yeah, I went the opposite way. I needed to go with someone British, and I went with Emma Watson. I would go with Emma Watson with for Rob's girlfriend who writes the movie reviews. I, I don't know if I could really see her being as posh as uh, as Charlie is. Okay, okay. That's fair. All right, did you have any others that you guys came up with? No. Oh, I just had uh, Ian played by Simon Pegg and uh, Liz being played by Olivia Coleman. Obviously, the age, ages are quite a bit uh, different, but I feel like... Liz is the kind of role that Olivia Coleman has played for a long time, for better or for worse, and she could do it in her sleep. The uh, the only other one I had was uh, Marie DeSalle would obviously oh, yeah. be Zendaya. Okay. I like hey, it. Todd, did, did you have any? No, no, I didn't come up with anything else. All right, who would Nicolas Cage play? He would either be playing Ian or Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I, I said Ian. <laughs> Ian's a good one. I think the real question is, who would Philip Seymour Hoffman play? And I think he could play Barry, Dick, and Rob. Yeah, he could play them all. Yeah. I want to see that movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, because, let's think about it. I mean, Barry is like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Twister. Rob is Philip Seymour Hoffman in Love, Liza. And Dick is Philip Seymour Hoffman in, I don't know, Boogie Nights maybe? Or, I mean, something where he's just kind of in the background a little bit. But that's like the three sides of Philip Seymour Hoffman. I was thinking that Barry was uh, was Philip Seymour Hoffman in uh, Along Came Paul. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's the better example. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. <laughs> All right highest war of this movie zach highest war of this movie uh i think the answer has to be john cusack he's in every scene in this movie and i know todd it's the, 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 name, name a bit who else could be cast in this movie in we this role he's, he's amazing 
he's he's perfect in this role like he has this kind of charisma uh that comes across as really natural it feels like he's playing a version of himself it's kind of calling back to some of his other roles before i mean you're telling me when he's screaming out in the rain you don't all you all, you don't think about lloyd dobler and say anything like there is a there's a semi-self-conscious hearkening back to the persona that he perfected in the 80s and 90s and I, I, it's hard for me to think of anybody else who could quite pull off the charm and the uh, narcissism and, uh, you know, annoyance of that character. Now, I said, I said John Cusack was like, this was the best of his career, partially because I don't necessarily like much of what he's done, other than, like, say anything. Um, and that's oh, one of the reasons why I was like, yeah, he, I don't know. He's kind of annoying in that too. He, he's he, yeah, I don't know. My my highest war is Jack Black. I mean, he's the one I couldn't recast, and he's like I said, he's Jack Black playing Jack Black, and so you have to you have to say that you know when you're basically playing yourself, and no one else really has the skill set to fill in that spot. I mean, that's the that's the definition of high war. So Jack Black was my pick. I said obviously, obviously a great choice. I said Lily Taylor because she sort of is always the highest war. This is around the same time she was doing Six Feet Under, and she just always seems more grounded and interesting and authentic than other characters in movies, especially this one. Everyone has got like her quirks, but their quirks, but her she's actually really an interesting character that is underplayed, and she obviously has a great rapport with Cusack that they showed in Say Anything. So I say Lily Taylor. I don't think there's a bad performance in this movie. I also don't think there is a like low war performance in this movie. I think any answer you could say is a high war performance. It's hard for me to imagine anybody else cast in any of these roles. Like Dick, are you telling me there's another actor other than Todd Luizzo who could play that role? You just said Philip Seymour Hoffman, and it would have been better. Well, okay, and especially yeah, but... in 2000. <laughs> and obviously, you like, know what Charlie I mean. I mean, it's a, hard to... a very low war performance. <sighs> Really? I, I, I think not. I mean, that the way that Catherine Zeta-Jones laughs on the phone, the way she says, bonjour, ha ha ha, Rob. I mean, that that's like, who else could really do Maybe Kate Blanchett, maybe in 2000, but I, and, and to be the kind of sultry kind of persona that she is, but also like someone who talks about Gene Simmons, I, she's amazing in this movie. Also kind of one of her breakout roles as well, I, I would say. I mean, she's she one of She was in Traffic this year, which was obviously a better movie. Breakout yeah. year for her. Yeah. Wasn't she in... Wasn't it, she in American it, Sweethearts with John Cusack, too? Yeah, that's right. A couple years know, later. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, and obviously in Intolerable Cruelty. Right, Todd? Yes, of course. Right. Of course, of course. There. Right there, right behind yeah. your head. Yep, yep. Um, I've got... I've got Catherine Zeta-Jones up there, too, in, in, with The Terminal. Which I thought you were going to say oh. was your favorite Chicago movie, because, Todd, when you said that you'd only ever been in the Chicago airport, so you're going to go with a movie that's set entirely in an airport, even though it wasn't Chicago. Oh, well, yeah, it could have been Chicago. <laughs> that's a good call. Alright, um... Worst performance time. Um, Zach just talked about how he doesn't think there's a bad performance. Todd, you said someone should have been nominated for a Razzie in this. Uh, so, <laughs> do you want do you want to talk more about uh, Laura? 
I that's not even who I wrote down. It's not. I mean, she's bad, oh. but she's not the worst. Okay, who's the worst? Tim Robbins. It's like <laughs> he's just so. From his hair and everything, he looks like Will Ferrell in Eurovision, like completely and totally out of place. Like what? It, it, the movie seems fake when he shows up. He, I mean, he's it's just this stupid, ridiculous stunt casting putting Tim Robbins there. It's like having, like, Mickey Rourke or something in that role, or, like, Mike Myers, someone who belongs nowhere near that universe, and that's what Tim Robbins is. And it, it, it's, a, it's a complete failure of casting. And he's awful. Uh, he's perfect in that role. I mean, the, the wig, the karate picture, the, you know, him talking about how he... Uh, He's a um, conflict resolution person. I'll another kind of harken to uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, I'm so sad you missed it. You missed the boat on this one, Todd. I feel like you were I just al- complimenting the screenplay and not the actor, but okay. I also did I have a Tim worse Robbins, performance, though. Oh, sorry. I think Tim Robbins is great at, at random cameos like this. Like, I, I, this reminded me, when he showed up, I completely forgot he was in it. And then he showed up, and I was like, this reminded me of when I watched, like, Welcome to Me. And he randomly shows up as the therapist. Or yeah, he's in Austin call. Powers. I know he's in yeah. War of the Worlds. He's got like those one minute parts. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and and so this is it. It's always one of those. What's Tim Robbins doing here? It, it just ha- has that that vibe to it. But um, no, it reminded me a lot of Welcome to Me, and I thought and it it works. It works just because you don't expect it, even though apparently he does it quite often. So you should, but you don't expect it. <laughs> Uh, Zach, what, what's your uh, worst performance? Uh, I went with Natasha Gregson Wagner as Caroline Fortis. By the way, she's the daughter of Natalie Wood. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, but uh, she's the Manic Pixie dream girl at the end of the movie. And I think this movie had done such a good job up to, up to that point of not having a Manic Pixie dream girl, like in every, 90, every uh, 2000s movie. And she definitely is. But in all fairness to the movie, Rob rejects her. It's probably more reaction to the character than the performance, but I've just, that character to me just seems a little bit fake and sort of thrown in at the final 20 minutes. Never really resonated with me as much as the others. That's a good call. That's a good call. Um, I, I was having trouble coming up with one and I didn't want to, didn't want to actually come up with a, uh, serious one. So I went with uh, the random guy who shows up in the shop looking for someone to play in his band. Oh. He's I, good, I though. I, I don't you know. Don't like, you didn't like him? I and thought he, has, he looked like, really the, realistic. he has, like, the bender fist pump as he walks out the door. I, I don't know. It, it just felt... It just felt... I thought, you, I thought you guys were going to ask me a trivia question about what Barry's uh, poster said, what he was looking for in a band. I was not prepared to answer that question, but that was like a lengthy sort of treatise or something. It was, it was. <laughs> for someone right. who has no musical talent. <laughs> Amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller Award, Zach. Uh, a lot of good candidates to choose from in this movie. I think my answer, though, ha- has to be Charlie Nicholson. Uh, I think Catherine Zeta-Jones is one of the big winners of this movie. And it's hardly a minor wanted... character. Well, um, okay. Do you want me to go with someone more minor? I guess I could go with... Uh... No, I, 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 I... she's only in, what, a couple scenes in this movie. Right. And, I mean, I think she, she lights up this movie. She's someone who's captivating and interesting. And uh, I would, I would want to know... If the, if the qualification for the Big, big, big Tim Amazing Larry Award is someone you want to know more about... I would say Charlie's the character I want to know more about in this movie, and we don't get a lot of screen time for her, so. 
Yes, I get that she's maybe the fifth build after, right? But she's only in a slim part of the movie. All right. Well, my choice is uh, Sarah Gilbert as Anna Moss. Um, and, uh, and when she showed up, I remember the first time I watched this and seeing her for the first time. And like this is like the only other thing besides Roseanne that I've ever seen Sarah Gilbert in. And I know for sure it was when I saw it the first time. And so I always I always liked that. And then having that kindred spirit with Dick was always good. And then you get to it and know and realize that she spells her first name A-N-A-U-G-H. I'm like, okay, anyone that spells Anna like that deserves to... You need to know more about that. Or their and, parents. Uh, or their parents. <laughs> so so that was uh, that was my pick. All right, well, for mine, is the, the moment I saw the person, it was obvious that this was mine. That's Alex Desert as Lewis, who is, of course, uh, Eli Williams in Boy Meets World. Uh, oh. I don't know. But plus, he uh, he's a cool character. He seems pretty chill, and he, like, calms them down when they're being super ridiculous, and he even calm, uh, calls them out when he calls them, like, sad elitists, and they don't even really argue with him. Uh, he, he, that, that scene needed to be more like this this needed to be more like a play or something like that it needed to take place completely in that in in that business and like characters like that would come in and out you know it'd be like a you'd be like clerks or something like that and, and like eli williams or i mean Al, uh, lewis not eli yeah that, that'd be my favorite minor character yeah I, that's I, a good call i absolutely agree with, with what you said there todd because you're right like it's not so much the character that maybe is that fascinating but there's there there's a really good dynamic in that scene that i wish the movie had maybe evolved a little bit more yeah you, you know he's been to the he's he hangs out there more often than he should now originally my favorite minor character is someone who doesn't appear in this movie but i didn't want to agitate todd more than he already is but i'm just going to say it anyway this movie has the greatest deleted scene of any movie ever made i know it sounds hyperbolic but it's true there's a deleted scene in this movie where Rob goes to the house of Beverly D'Angelo and she says um, that uh, she has this crazy record collection that she wants to sell it to him for like $15 because it is her husband's record collection and he is uh, a cheating asshole and she's eager to get rid of his stuff. And Rob says, I can't really do that. There's a purity to this collection. I'll give you 1500 And she says, I won't take any more than 20 And then he says, be reasonable, 1300 And she says, I won't go a nickel over 45 it, It's a hilarious sort of bargaining negotiation scene that is absolutely charming to watch. It's in the book, too. And for the life of me, I have no idea why they took it out of the movie because Beverly D'Angelo was, was great in the role. And that's the kind of minor character I would want to know more about. There's an entire episode of the series just, just about that deleted scene so um it's it's a tragedy that was left on the final uh, final cutting room floor but it's on youtube if you want to take a look at well, it well it's because the original screenwriter who is the screenwriter of gone in 60 seconds uh like what like is the one who created the show so it was probably his scene they took it out of the movie so he's like oh screw you guys i'm making a whole episode about it when i make the show you know possibly scott rosenberg who also wrote con air which on the, the shit should have been in the movie <laughs> On the show, the character, the, the the disgruntled wife character is played by Parker Posey, and she's really good in that one episode. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah, she plays that role really nicely. We should have a power rankings of the top deleted scenes. I mean, there's a scene where Miles is buying shoes. Like, I mean, you don't get much better than that. 
Yeah, but this this deleted scene should have been in the movie. In fact, if you watch carefully, Rob actually answers the phone, and he and it's clear that it, it's the Beverly D'Angelo character. If you know that scene exists, because he says where where he writes down the address, and there's never any follow up to that. So it's a sort. It, it is like a four minute scene. It does go on a little bit longer. So I'm sure it just had. And it, as you were saying, Todd, the movie does run a little long. I would I would agree that's one of the flaws. So I'm sure it, it just it, it was cut out. But it's a really cute, charming scene. Really well written. All right, let's move into uh, Stickman and Billy Bat's douchebag. Uh, I'll go first on this one, and I think it's fair to say that Rob is both. Um, Hard to argue. I, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say Rob and go with that. All right. Yeah. Todd. <laughs> uh, for Stickman, I mean, I was going to go with Kevin Bannister. Because he, um, That's a good call. you know, he's, he's, he swipes the girl at, what, age, like, 11 or something like that. And he ends up marrying her because he's so much of a stick man, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but the biggest douchebag, I was going to say Allison's mom. Because, like, that phone call is just, like, excruciating from her perspective. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like what the hell is she doing? And it's a terror. I mean, she, she's a, she's a bitch more than anything. Maybe she'd be douchebag slash bitch, but, I mean, she, she takes the cake. <laughs> If I was going to do a 1970s recasting of that role, it would have been Ruth Gordon, a.k.a. Maude from Harold and Maude. Yeah, I can see it. Uh, how can Ruth Kev- Gordon talking to Rob Gordon. Hey, I never made that connection before. Um, how can Kevin Bannister be a stick man if he's only laid his claim on one woman his entire life since age 11? We don't know that that was his first girl. That's a fair point. <laughs> They live in Australia. (laughs) Yeah, I've always found that interesting, too. (laughs) They live in Australia. (laughs) All right, well... um uh, so uh, I, 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 the biggest stick man, um, Rob is one upped in this movie by uh, somebody named Marco, who is the boyfriend of Charlie. After uh, Rob oh. basically is ne- so neurotic that uh, he questions his ability as a stick man, so that immediately disqualifies him as biggest stick man. You can't be a stick man and question your own abilities. It's like Michael Jordan, you know, questioning whether he is a great basketball player. It just doesn't happen, right? You have to have confidence. You know, Burgess Meredith never questioned his stickman abilities. Uh, anyway, um, biggest douche in this movie, I think, is obviously Ian, right? I mean, the guy is a... Con- the other one, I, I mean, that, that's, I, I think, the low-hanging fruit. And uh, he, I think, is makes a, makes a strong case to be in the echelon of all-time movie douchebags. But, uh, you know, it, it's maybe it's, it's low-hanging fruit, I guess. Well, the kinky lizards are also douchebags. Justin and uh, Vince. Yeah. I wanted to do a category on this episode about the worst haircuts in this movie because both Justin and Vince would make that list and Tim Robbins. Yeah, but course. I think it's just those three. Yeah, well, he, that's, that's, it's Will Ferrell in Eurovision. I'm saying, like, that's what he looks like <laughs> in a ponytail at times. <laughs> Did you guys know? So I've seen this movie a million times, but one of the things I, I noticed for the first time rewatching this movie again was at the end of the movie, the last shot of Justin and Vince. Um, I can't remember which one, but one of them is actually stealing music from the party. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never stealing noticed that before. From... I thought that was perfect. <laughs> I also thought you were going to ask me what records they steal from the store. So I know one of them was Raimucho Sakamoto or whatever, and uh, uh, Serge Gainsbourg, better known as the father of uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Nice. 
Were you stealing for other people? No, that's for us. Todd, what's the best scene? I think it's when they first see uh, Marie at the club. That, like, I mean, we talked about the the little bullshit conversation they have about the the. I mean, that just seems like yeah, that's something that you would you would have at that moment. And plus, you know, it, it means Peter Frampton as he walks in with his like <laughs> with his, like tail between his legs. I mean, I, and then like the whole thing about like I want to date a musician, like I want to live with a musician, you know, like that whole that whole conversation, like that that scene is pretty awesome, and the song was pretty legit too. Yeah, that's a good call, Zach. Uh, any scene with Rob, Barry, and Dick. I mean, their dynamic is electric in this movie. I guess if I had to pick one, maybe the scene where um, Laura's dad has died and they talk about it, the Laura's dad's, in honor of Laura's dad's top five songs about death, a Laura's dad tribute list. And then uh, as Rob deals with the grief, uh, Barry and Dick just go at it about, you know, the song that's associated with the big chill and the Gordon Lightfoot song. And then the, the night Laura's dad, he died. No, 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 no. It's just, I mean... You watch a scene like that, and you can just see this movie could have gone anywhere with these characters. It's it's cinematic magic. What I like about that scene is Barry never shuts up, and Dick like says like two things the entire time. But when he says it, Barry has to stop and be like, "Dude, respect." <laughs> it's like this guy doesn't say much, but man, when he does, he he cuts to the core. How about the line about how I hired these guys three days a week? And they just kept coming in. That was four years ago. <laughs> I love that. I mean, that explains everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the one I had written down is uh, the scene where Rob explains all the stuff that Laura told Liz. Mm. Um, Good and choice. The reason is because uh, you, it, as it's going along, you, you are totally on Rob's side about everything because that's all you hear about. And that's the moment where he stops and goes, okay, full disclosure, I'm a douchebag. And he tells you all the stuff of why he is one. And it shows that everyone is just real in this and no one really is supposed to be like this. No one's the hero. No one's the bad guy. Everyone just is. And that's the scene really where that that starts and that is portrayed the, the best and so uh that's uh that that's the one i i had written down and then the uh, with honorable mention to the third alternate reality of how the confrontation between rob and ian go where uh where dick knocks out all of ian's teeth with the phone yeah because that's just awesome the other one i was thinking <laughs> of was the what does yet mean scene because yep. that's jack black at his peak <laughs> like every reaction seems so genuine you know like you know because it's a cinematic masterpiece and you're an idiot or whatever he says and then you know <laughs> like I, I don't like that whole scene was awesome but i feel like the movie needed more movie references like that there's like the, the clockwork orange like beating dream sequence that he has and there's like the he drops like lard ass from stand by me on him like i'm like i'm like this is like awesome <laughs> like that, that like those kind of scenes are when the movie was at its best but the word yet, maybe. <laughs> like, I see what you're getting at, you know? <laughs> when he finally stopped talking long enough to think about what he was saying. And yeah, I mean, and that, that seems like basically directly out of Clerks. And, but I mean, I mean, that's not a, that's not nothing, that's, that's not a detriment. That's obviously a good thing. 
Well, that's one thing I was wondering about, too, because I know you're a huge fan of Clerks, Todd, and I think it's hard to kind of watch this movie without thinking about, in some ways, how Clerks did something similar and edgier, frankly, five years earlier. Like, maybe is that subconsciously influencing your distaste for this movie? Because I, I think that's maybe a valid criticism. I don't know. I mean, in a way, but, I mean, it... I mean, we'll get into the flaws. I'll... I'll yeah. Just okay, keep one, waiting. We're almost there. One more category. <laughs> uh, if there were a sequel, Zach, what would it be about? Rob, Dick, and, and Barry. I, I guess maybe that's too obvious of an answer, but it would just be it would just be the the store all the time every day. I thought you right? were going to say Charlie because you already said that. You said you wanted to know more about her. Isn't that how you get it? But I feel that way about every character. I love this movie. Like I I want to know more about uh, the Liz character. I want to know more about Laura and Laura's Laura's dead dad. And uh, I want to know more about the kinky wizards, not lizards. And uh, I want to know more about uh, Kevin Bannister and and. But another subtle thing about my choice of biggest stick man, Marco, I forgot to mention, is that I love how Charlie calls him Rocco. And I think that's like maybe her on purpose getting his name wrong. It's like this movie's smarter than you think it is. Like it, it has that kind of subtlety about these characters that's just wonderful. I'm sorry. Okay, what's what's your pick, Todd? I, even though you wouldn't watch a sequel to this movie. Uh, I was going to say Rob in high school because... It, oh. it seems sort of like his, like his like uh, high school or whatever his middle school all that it seems sort of like reminiscent of like eighth grade or something like that or maybe more like the Sandlot with like the breaking of the fourth wall is sort of like the narration in the Sandlot. I mean, I feel like that could be an interesting way to go with like a really socially awkward guy who's actually kind of an asshole. Uh, I, I I think it'd be interesting to follow that character. No, Terry. What I have written down is a Wonder Years-style high school prequel. There you go. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we agree on something. We, we agree on something. <laughs> and, and yeah, with, with the narration by John Cusack. Of it's Sa- it's Sandlot-ish, isn't it? I went, well, Sandlot, Wonder Years, same idea. Okay. Heck, they, the two might even be narrated by the same voice now that I think about it. They're very similar. All right, we've reached that magical time. Todd, crap all over this movie. Let's hear it. Well, okay, so the last, like, 20 to 30 minutes of this movie are complete nonsense. It is completely stupid. Why? Like, they should have never gotten back together. Why doesn't it stop? Like, that last part is like a final chapter in a book that they didn't put in the movie. It's, It's like something that plays over the credits and they're, like, showing what happened to these characters or something in the movie version. Why do we... Like, I watched the movie twice in the last two days just to, to prepare for this. And both times, I tuned out about a half an hour left because I was like, this is stupid. This isn't even the same movie. It, I mean, it, it takes a nosedive. Like, the first, like, half hour, 45 minutes are really good. Then it gets, like, okay, this is, like, solid. And then it just dives. Like, the last... The end of the movie is awful. I mean, it doesn't, and like I said, it doesn't need to be two hours. This isn't almost famous. Like, this is, this is an hour and 35 minutes tops, like, with credits, you know? I, I agree with you more than you would possibly realize. I actually, when I rewatch this movie, usually I do turn it off when Laura's dad dies, which I've always felt to be, like, a too easy way of getting them back together. 
I agree with you. So then how... Okay, well, I mean, you said similar things about It's a Wonderful Life, too, about how you only watch half the movie, but it's still a top ten yeah. movie of all time for you. So I don't, I don't, I don't understand that logic, but okay. I, I mean, I think the movie should have also leaned more into being a comedy, because, like, the more they try to make you give a shit about Rob, the more you hate him. And, like, it, it's not... It would have been more endearing and entertaining if it was just a straight comedy. Like clerks or whatever and i mean that's basically what the movie's trying to be even though i mean because it's it's definitely inspired by the link later and kevin smith although i also think it oddly inspired the entire movie of top five by chris rock which is actually a really good movie as well but i don't know it like i mean i i can't get over the last like 30 minutes of the movie i mean it's it's i mean it's pretty it's pretty much a train wreck I don't know if I'd go that far. I've actually watched, watching it again, like, if you would ask me questions, trivia questions about the last 20 minutes, you're right. I pro like, you did actually ask me about Jack Black's band. I, I didn't even remember that he had three different names. I had to think back to that. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just sort of, it strains credibility that they would get back together. Although, in all fairness, the movie doesn't necessarily, she doesn't necessarily say yes to his marriage proposal. But you're right, by, by that point, it's kind of like, well, we're used to this kind of, you know, really like um, angsty, uh, very um, grumpy Rob. It's not as fun seeing him back with Laura. The movie does kind of, and then it kind of builds up to this weird climax at the at the uh, release party that is a very kind of convenient connection between all these dis disparate parts of the screenplay. I agree. I agree. It's, it's just not my favorite part of the movie. Ending with that party kind of feels like the ending of Little Miss Sunshine where they're all dancing. I was going to say that. Yeah, like, I mean, we always talk about you have to end in with a song and dance to be at, like a rousing conclusion to a movie, and this is no different. <laughs> this, is, this is the same as Slumdog Millionaire and Little Miss Sunshine or whatever. But I don't seem to care in this one, though. I, I didn't, don't I, you think I, it slows down? It slows down with like a half an hour left because Laura is a terrible character and when she comes back in and she's back part of the movie, it's like nothing happens for 30 minutes until you get to see Jack Black sing. And it's like because it's Jack Black and because he's awesome, that like that, that scene kind of works. But I mean that's what the whole movie's leading up to is to see him on stage. We do that anyway. He's He was already part of Tenacious D. See, I think the bigger problem is they shouldn't have ended up together. I, I And yeah. this goes back to a, a bigger point that Terry started alluding to, which is that, like, Rob is an asshole. He, he Laura is a, is a good person. She's a successful lawyer. And, like, she, I, all you know, the top five reasons she's a good person. Like, she deserves better than Rob. This movie probably should have had more of a, like, an Annie Hall style ending where they just kind of agree to par mutually part ways and they can both grow as people apart. And, uh, yeah, I feel like this ending is a little bit more tacked on. Or maybe you you finish it with, uh, they get back together, but he finishes that mixtape for the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And uh, see, I just, it, I hate that subplot. It, that that they, doesn't work at all. And they break up, and, and then he ends up right back where the, where the whole thing started. No, I, I will say, though, there is nothing douchier than making a mixtape for someone. I'm surprised neither of you had that as your reason for naming Rob the biggest douche of the movie. It was a different time. It was a different time. I, I was thinking about that, because part of this also is what's outdated. I'm like, what? what's the new mixtape? I mean, Spotify playlist. I was going to say, let, let me send you my, my Spotify playlist. And that's what it is in High Fidelity to TV show, too. Oh, is it? Yeah. That's wow. one of the ways it's updated. And, like, Charlie's an Instagram influencer on the TV series. Okay. 
Okay, that makes it doesn't sense. doesn't perfectly translate, but you know they try. You, you, you get the idea, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's the only thing you hate, Todd. Just the last thirty minutes, because I'm kind of there with you to some degree. Not as much as you, but what, what else? Well, I mean, no, I mean, there, I mean, I, there's a reason why I still don't. I mean, I'm still like in that limbo of like three and two and a half stars because I still do genuinely like like most of the movie. Like the first like forty five minutes or so, I think are really good. But I mean, it progressively just ticks down from there when it starts to lose focus and tries to expand more on in, uninteresting characters. A.K. Laura. Well, Laura is like yeah, the pinnacle of them, and I think Charlie is pretty much a like a garbage character too. I mean, they don't give her enough time to do anything. And you didn't like the scene with Charlie at the party where she's like, "I knew it. I I had this. Ra- I have these rash of old boyfriends calling me." But like that's that's a great scene. It's it's an interesting scene that I've never seen quite like in any other movie. But the idea of of old boyfriends Rob calling says back. She is not interesting. He even says that. I felt the same thing. Like, why was I so obsessed with this girl? She, like, she sucks. She's nothing like, like, she has nothing in common with me. I kind of felt the same way. Well, it's his, it's his rationalization, right? Because if they're not as interesting as him, then he didn't, he should have never been with them in the first place. It's low-key why, he, when he get, gets back with Penny again, he's like, she's a film critic, which I think is a totally cool job. It's like, okay, because it impresses you what she does for a living, you have more respect for her now. Rob is an asshole. I mean, I don't know if we if we should get into this, but like, I think the the challenge of the movie is you you have to understand that the movie also thinks he's an asshole. Otherwise, the movie I think comes off as pretty like vapid, just like Rob is. But I think you know, for me, it works twenty years later with the understanding that Rob is a pretty toxic person who, you know, in in at our worst we can associate with, but also is just so narcissistic. I mean, even when Penny makes that revelation about, you know, it wasn't rape, but it was almost, he's like, the only thing he can take out of that conversation is, oh yeah, I broke up with her. He doesn't even remotely consider her feelings. And I think moments like that, there's a few moments like that in the movie where he just has selective attention to what these women say. And it's moments like that when you know the movie is like, okay, this guy is a total dick. Like we can't really totally associate with him because he is in this really selective, almost juvenile way of approaching relationships. And I think that's more John Cusack than the character. Well, kudos, highest war performance. Which is why I think John, this is the best John Cusack ever was, is because it is the most John Cusack of any of his roles. (laughs) I don't know. I I just feel like he always he always ends up being a douchebag because I just picture him as being one so <laughs> I don't know if that's fair or not but I'm going with what it. are your flaws Terry I didn't really have done any flaws but I do have a conspiracy theory my conspiracy theory is that School of Rock is a sequel to this it's possible except School like, of Rock takes place in Boston I think yeah I could see Barry you know and Li- Liz became principal of the Horace Greeley Elementary yes yes I never considered where School of Rock takes place I know I don't know subtly subtly and we're gonna deep dive uh, School of Rock at some point but I think there are subtle implications that take place in Boston Battle of the Bands does not seem like a Boston thing it doesn't seem like a real life thing it seems like a movie thing one of my favorite like memes that's going around is uh, did anybody ever consider that School of Rock had a 
couple thousand people at a battle of the bands in the middle of a weekday. Like that 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 band promoter is like the greatest band promoter of all time. Yeah. 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 I'm already already the Big Tim High, uh, High Roller Award is is the winner of that contest. The guy with the long hair. From No Vacancy. No vacancy. That's, that's right. No vacancy. That's the guitar player. That's not even the. the that's not even the lead singer. <laughs> the guy who hits on uh, Joan Cusack. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Can I list a couple of conspiracies? Go for it. Okay. Because uh, I don't. Ha- I already said my flaw. Um, so uh, Laura drives Miles's Saab, except it's not red. And uh, I thought what, one thing that was interesting is. When after her after the father's funeral and she tracks him down, Rob has jumped in like this big pile of mud, and then she proceeds not only to let him in her car but then to have sex with him, like that is commitment. I mean, he was like really muddy. I I don't know what she was thinking there. Um, I also had a question about uh, Laura's accent. She clearly has an accent, although she grew up in Chicago and she even talks about how this is where my dad used to take me, something like that as a kid. So I don't know what that's all about. And then uh, my final question is a stupid question. It's um, so in uh, in the movie Breach, it's a, a major plot point that the Chris Cooper character was a big fan of Catherine Zeta Jones, and uh, he had where <laughs> he's the spy in that movie, yeah. and so he uh, he had DVDs of Entrapment. I'm wondering if he actually watched this movie because. This would this seems like a totally um, you know a, a movie that he would never watch. And Catherine Zeta Jones isn't in that much of the movie, but I love the idea of this you know illicit Russian spy, uh, the biggest spy in American history, watching High Fidelity. But maybe just fast forwarding it to the Charlie scenes. That is a brilliant, uh, brilliant connection to make there. I like it. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's wrap this up. LVP, MVP. I'm gonna go first. My my LVP is uh, Jackie Alden, who is the uh, the top five breakup that got bumped off the list for Laura, um, because she really didn't mean anything, and he just did it to spite her. Um, so uh, so she's LVP, and my MVP is Bruce Springsteen. Because yeah, the boss. I mean, to get the boss in in a cameo like that, which I mean, you could also go into why weren't there more scenes like that? Why didn't they try and get more more people to just kind of be his thoughts in his head like that? I thought that would I think that would have been cool, but the fact that they actually had Bruce Springsteen on there was pretty awesome. So he's my MVP. All right, Todd. Well, the LVP is obviously John Cusack, because, <laughs> I don't know, I mean, having him in the role is too obvious because he played it in Say Anything, but he's too much of a douche to be likable, and you think you actually have to like Rob in some way and root for him in order for the movie to be successful, and it, and he did, can't do that, which is part of why he's not an A-list actor and he never will be, is because he, as a person, is not likable. And uh, it, But this movie is just a total flex by John Cusack. Like, he wrote the movie, too. Like Terry was saying, it's a Miles Teller project, basically. I mean, and that's why Miles Teller is sort of, like, looked down on by a lot of people. It's because he's an asshole and because he is super cocky about what he does. And, I mean, his entire family's in this movie. There's, like, five Cusacks listed in the credits. And he is miscast in his own movie, basically. John Cusack's the LVP. And the MVP I'm giving to uh, Nicholas Lundy, who is the art 
uh, director because I think the movie is actually has some really cool sets and uh, those locations like the store and his apartment and uh, Marie's loft like they look like really lived in and real and I, I, I really like the art direction. Can I also say one other MVP that I want to throw out there is uh, is uh, Rob's sorting abilities of his records. Um, I mean, to as someone with an extensive DVD collection that has sorted them several different ways throughout the years, to take it all down and sort it autobiographically. I mean, I I, I had the same the same reaction as yeah that. and i don't know how you do that when you own your own store like i mean what is <laughs> yeah. how does he ever have time to actually sort that he's probably at the store for like 10 hours a day at least yeah i feel like that scene is a metaphor for his character though because like it, i mean it is it's basically turning something beautiful something that should be beautiful and accessible to everybody like music and just morphing it into his own kind of narcissistic system of you know, self, uh, indulgence, right? Because no, how would anyone know about that record? The Stevie Nicks one record that he has and that it's, he bought in 1983, but didn't give it to the person. It's like, really, man, how, how narcissistic can you get? That's, I mean, it, it's it also simultaneously kind no of awesome. It's going to be in his place. Yeah. It's awesome. All right. Zach, I think in honor of that, we should we should rearrange our movies autobiographically. I, although I, I wouldn't know where to start. That's with like that. totally a scene in Diner, though. Like I mean, like the Daniel Stern character is the same way with his records. Like he, I think there's like a scene that's almost really similar to that. That's fair, and and the love of the Baltimore Colts in that movie is a, a little bit like the love of music in this movie. We could deep dive I, that I, movie. I mean, this movie. Well, I guess what I want to say before I do my MVP LVPs, I like this movie. I, I, I think it's influenced by a lot of things. I think Diner is absolutely one thing that's influenced by and Clerks, but I think it has also influenced a lot since it's come out. I mean, you, I've, you know, you watch like Fleabag, for example. Like a lot of this mo- movie, watching it is like, oh, Fleabag did that kind of, you know, the the the, the fourth wall sort of thing. And then I think cur- the whole Curb Your Enthusiasm show, based around the Larry David character, which is you know has strong parallels to Rob. And also the kind of self-loathing of BoJack Horseman, I think, is, is in this movie, too. Um, anyway, my MVP of this movie is Dick Cusack, who is the father of John and Joan Cusack. And in this movie, he plays the minister. Um, and uh, I'm just <laughs> glad that he had uh, talented uh, children. Um, I also thought one of your trivia questions was going to be named, like, the nine movies that John and Joan Cusack are in together. And I was not prepared for that. But uh, I think they're both great in this movie. I think actually Joan Cusack is is really underrated in this movie and absolutely a character I'd want to know more about. Um, and then um, LVP of this movie, gosh, I don't know. That, Todd for not liking it. I, imagine if, if Todd was on board with this movie, we could start referencing it like we do with Sideways. Hey, I watched it twice, so I have and, now seen it more than Terry, so we could still do that. And it sounds like the only reasons he doesn't like it are for even Haishagabula, whatever her name is, and for the last thirty minutes. And like John that, that's Cusack. not those are those are and John Cusack. Those I are mean, not I well, John okay. Cusack, even John Cusack is, I guess, a fairly. I don't know. Did Miles like this movie? I guess that could be a, a, a trivia uh, a category for all of our podcasts. I think unequivocally he was a fan of this movie. I don't know. I just realized that uh, I recast Laura as Alicia Vikander, who won an Oscar. Or being in the movie The Danish Girl, and I recast her to replace the original actress who was a Danish girl. You're welcome. That is fascinating knowledge. 
right, Todd, quote of the day. I feel like that's the same sort of disqualification as the, the big chill scene in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Should be disqualified. <laughs> I want to know what they have against the big chill. That's, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting conversation that we never got to see. Uh, my quote comes from Supernova, which, um, because it sort of describes this podcast. Um, so, Stanley Tucci's character did something. He's like, I don't even know why I do it. It isn't even that satisfying half the time. And Colin Firth's like, so why do you do it? And he's like, for the other half. And this would not be one of those halves. <laughs> very nice, very nice. All right, Zach, what do you got? I have a couple quotes. I'll, I'll read them real fast. Uh, one is a lengthy passage uh, from Roger Ebert who says that he gave it four stars. This is a film about and also for not only obsessed clerks in record stores, but for video store clerks who have seen all the movies, bookstore employees who have read all the books, and bartenders and waitresses and, and grocers and health food stores. Like, there is absolutely something valid about folks who work in retail watching this movie, and uh, I, it, it resonates. The only other line I was going to say is maybe my favorite, one of my favorite lines from the movie is, is the opening line, the opening uh, soliloquy that he has. What can came first the music or the misery did i listen to pop music because i was miserable or was i miserable because i listened to pop music i fantastic writing i mean it, that's from the book that's from the nick hornby book and I, that is i think so true but it can also be applied to movies too and uh i i, I feel rob in that in that speech that was almost my quote and i'm glad i changed it um so my quote is uh, from High Fidelity. It is from Barry. And I think it's a perfect way to wrap up this podcast. Uh, at one point, Barry looks at his wrist that has nothing on it and says, Hey, it's half past a monkey's ass. Let's go. And with that, we are going to draw this podcast to a close. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, make sure, again, you subscribe, rate, review. We'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then... Have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.